not, and because of communion, I'm not so sure how far we will get. But I will say this to you immediately. Prayer is a struggle, if we're honest. It's a struggle individually. We have that struggle throughout the day, not just one day here and one day there. It is a struggle to pray the way as we ought. And it certainly is a struggle corporately. Every church has that struggle corporately. There is no particular mandate. Some may take me up on this later. If you want to get into that study with me, I'd be happy to do it. But there is no specific verse that mandates, if you will, for example, Wednesday evening prayer meeting service. And because of that, some sitting in this audience won't come out to prayer when you can. But some won't come out because they don't see the need for it. They don't see the priority for it. They think it's just really gossip circles or whatever. And in some churches it is. And, and the concept of the house of God is not, and we'll talk about this obviously this morning, isn't even seen as important. And right now, I'm sure there's anyone who knows some theology and knows some of the scriptures and has been around for a while, probably has all kinds of things running through their mind, even regarding the house of God in Israel and so forth. And that's okay, because we're going to look at it. But I do feel if we really want to grasp how we should be a praying people, and if we really want to grasp how, as a congregation, we ought to be a congregation that is a praying church, I do need believe that we need to understand this concept of the house of God. And it is absolutely, in my opinion, as I've studied it, vital in the foundation of understanding prayer. In understanding prayer in the local church, in understanding prayer in our life, in understanding what this concept is of the house of God and God himself and how he views it and did view it. To begin with, I want to give you just a couple of quotations in simple areas. Let me make it very simple regarding the expression, the house of God. It's first thing that was fascinating to me is I could not find it in the English dictionary. They had all kinds of things regarding house. They had all kinds of things regarding different types of houses. But uh, several dictionaries that I consulted did not have the term per se, the house of God. However, Marion and Webster's Theosaurus did have this, and I quote, House of God is synonymous with house of worship, church, house of prayer, tabernacle, or temple. Also, as I did some research and went back through various Bible dictionaries, I found this and I quote it to you. This one's from the Tyndale Dictionary, and I quote, House of Prayer is a common phrase used in the ancient Near Eastern world. And that's why I chose this one, because as I did some other research, the Eastern ancient world had different ways that it used it, and I thought this was the most accurate. It's a common phrase used in the ancient New Eastern world for a structure used to accommodate a deity or his servants. I repeat that again. It was used back then for a structure, a building, if you will, a house, to accommodate a deity or his servants. Today, if we talk about house of prayer, today, if we talk about a church, we normally think of a building. We normally think of a structure, a religious place of worship. 
Now, for those of you who uh, know well the New Testament teaching on the word church or ecclesia, you know it's a called out people, and we'll get to that. But I think that also causes people, even in the church of Jesus Christ, not to pray the way they should or where they should because of their theology, which they don't finish looking at all of the word of God and the whole counsel of God on it. So it's interesting that we find those definitions as we go back to, the, to English, as we go back to the ancient Near East, and as we go back to even some of our thinking today. So let's talk about the house of God first as foundational in understanding how God used it as well. And I could not study this with you without saying to you, because many of you know it, but it's necessary to hear it, that there is no house, none. There is no structure that can contain God, none. There is no structure, per se, that can contain God, and that is because God is spirit, and God is omniscient. And I want you to walk through a couple of very quick passages that I'll fly through. Go with me to Psalm 139. We would not adequately touch upon the term the house of God, uh, the expression the house of God, without recognizing that, that there is no house that can contain God. And in Psalm 139, which most of you will recognize immediately, in that psalm, in verses 7 through 11, is all I'll touch upon, because it shows us the omnipresence of God, really. i got to get there. Keep turning pages. Here we go. Verse 7, where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, behold, Thou art there. If I take the wings of dawn and I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. And we could go on in that whole psalm. And you, you know it even deals with being born and, and so forth, how the Lord knew us even in our mother's womb and before the substance was even formed, verse 16. God is everywhere. Thus you can't contain him in a building. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. You might keep your finger in here. Some of you have seen this passage recently from me before. But 1 Kings chapter 8, to get right to the point, verse 27. I want you to see it. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. There it says, But we will indeed, and this is the prayer of dedication of Solomon's temple. But we will uh, indeed, but, excuse me, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Now watch this. Behold heaven, and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. We'll come back to this passage, but I want you to notice there that there is nothing that can contain God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 6, it's close by, go there. 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 6. We see the same thing, verse 6. But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens... And the highest heavens 
cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? And there again, talking about Solomon, who God is going to choose to build. And you can look at it in verse, uh, Psalm 66, verse 1. I won't turn to that just for time's sake. But in that verse, you will see the same thing, that you cannot build a house to contain God. In fact, the scriptures speak, number two, point number two, talking about the expression the house of God. Heaven is referred to his abode. I asked you to keep your finger in First Kings because we've been there before. You've seen it before, but I want to highlight it to you. If you go to First Kings, the New Testament verifies this, but chapter 8 again. And if you look at verse 30, 1 Kings 8, 30, it says, And listen to the supplication of thy servant and thy people Israel, when they pray toward this place, and that was a house, that was a building, that was a structure, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. If you look at verse 39, same chapter, it says, Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Verse 43 Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And you could go on as some other verses right in that book alone. The point I'm saying is this. There is no structure that can contain God. We need to understand that fundamentally. Because God's spirit and he's omniscient. And yet the scriptures speak of God's abode really being, first of all, in heaven. And those that were here for the study, we saw there's a first, second, third heaven. But even heaven cannot contain God. And yet, yet, I want you to get this, we find that in the scriptures, it refers to a place called my house, to a place on earth that is called the house of God. Go back to Isaiah 56, where we started. I'm going to show you two things there, and then we'll just walk through Psalms for a second. But in Isaiah chapter 56... And verse 7, as I read, you notice in verse 7, it says, talking about the holy mountain, then in the middle of the verse, he says, my house of prayer. And you notice further in the verse, for my house will be called a house of prayer. So certainly, we must say that the heavens and the earth cannot contain God. And he does have a place that's called his abode, which is in heaven. And yet he himself, not just here, but throughout scripture, refers that on earth, on earth, I want you to get it, there is a place that he refers to as his house, his place. In Isaiah chapter 2, go there, Isaiah, same book, chapter 2. You might say, what's this got to do with prayer? Well, you should have seen the word prayer several times already. But I think... If we don't grasp this, we will never grasp the importance of praying ourselves or praying even in a local church. In Isaiah chapter 1, and I know the local church hasn't come up yet. Local, Isaiah chapter uh, 2, sorry, verse 2, uh, verse 3. Let me go right to verse 3. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that's in Jerusalem, and what? To the house of the God of Jacob. Now, I don't think there's any doubt in your mind he's referring to the temple here, but that's what it was, the temple. There was a place 
on earth that was referred to as a house of God. Go with me to Psalms. We'll walk through a couple. Psalm 42. I'll take you from the beginning of the Psalms toward the end with just four verses. Psalm 42. Psalm 42. I want you to see verse 4. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. That's in a very famous psalm, by the way. You know, as the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after thee, O God, right? Verse 1. But you come to verse 4, and he says, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throne and lead them in procession to what? The house of God. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude keeping festival. Right there in a very familiar psalm, we see that the psalmist is referring to the fact that he led people in procession to a place called the house of God. Go to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. Psalm 84, verse 10. Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. I remember Pastor Stringer used to quote this many times. I would rather stand in the threshold of the house, what? Of the house of my God, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. What I want you to get for our purposes, again, here the psalmist calls out that it's better to be in the courts of the Lord. It's better to be in a place called the house of God. Let's go to two more Psalms, 122. Psalm 122. And I just want you to get the feel, and you say it's all Old Testament. There's no New Testament. Oh, yes, there is. But Psalm 122, verse 1. And I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He was glad. And then what do they do? They go up to Jerusalem and so forth, and they go to the temple. So there's a place referred to as the house of God. One more Psalm. Go to Psalm 135. In verse 2. Starts off with praise, wants the servants to praise. You get to verse 2. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Everywhere we see this. How can it be? How we, that's a legitimate question. How can it be that nothing can contain God, and heaven which is his abode is not able to contain him. And yet on earth, there's a place referred to as the house of God. How is that possible? Let me give it to you. It is because of this. God's identification with. You got that? He refers to a house of God because there's a place that God identifies himself with. There is a place that God associates himself with. A specific place that he did. And if you go back with me to Exodus chapter 20, let's go there, Exodus 20. Interestingly enough, it's in the passage of the Ten Commandments. I want you to see something. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. I told you it would be an unusual study on prayer. Exodus 20, 24. You shall make an altar on earth for me. And you shall sacrifice on it 
your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place, watch, here's the identification, where I cause, that's God, my name to be remembered, and I will come to you and bless you. He tells Israel early on that there was a place for sacrifices. Hold on to that. We know it's going to be the temple and so forth. But he also says, in every place where I'm the one that I cause my name to be remembered, there is going to be a place that I identify with, and I am going to come and bless you. Go with me to Exodus 25, 8. 25, 8. Watch, and let them construct a sanctuary for me. Why? Purpose clause that. What? I may what? Dwell among them. He says, I want you to construct a building. And in that building, I want you to construct it, and I will tabernacle among you. I will put a tent, if you will. I will take up an abode, if you will. Go with me to chapter 33 of Exodus and verse 7. I have to cover some things today on this foundational area. But uh, Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called, and, and he called, it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, I know this is Old Testament, but stay with me. It's foundational. The point was, God said, I want you to construct something, and it actually started with a tent. And that is where the people would go and meet, and they would seek the Lord. Could they seek him outside the tent? Of course they could. But there was a place that he identified with. There was a place that the world began to know. And everyone began to know that this is a special place where God meets with his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, let's go there. Deuteronomy chapter 12, we see something very significant. Then I'll summarize the Old Testament and bring us to the New. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11. Then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall what? Choose. For what? His name to dwell. He's choosing it, not man. He's choosing it as a place to tabernacle, if you will, with men. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, Old Testament, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to the Lord. What's he saying? As he closes up the second writing of the law, as he closes up those first five precious books, he reminds them, there is a place I'm going to meet with you. There is a place to go to. And it is a place that I will dwell among you. 
back in that passage, you don't need to turn there, in 1 Kings chapter 8, listen to verse 29. That thine eyes, he talks about again in verse 27 we read, that the heaven can't contain him, but he says this in 28 and 29. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servants. And listen to the cry of the prayer of thy servant as he prays before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward this place, that thou hast said, my name shall be there. And then listen to the prayer of me and thy servants. There was a place that God identified himself with. There was a place... And in the Old Testament, you should have gotten that by now, it was very clear that God had a place that he set up. And it started with a tent, a simple tent, in which it identified the people of God, and they would identify with God, and the world knew it, and that's where God, in a special way, he could meet with Abraham out in the streets. A little different from ours. But he could meet with Moses anywhere he wanted. He could meet with Jacob anywhere he wanted. But the people of God who were to represent and identify with God, there was a place to meet. There was a place to identify with his name. And it was the tent. And eventually it became the temple. It became Solomon's temple, as you know in the Old Testament. And that's where that prayer in 1 Kings comes from. But it was still a place. Though God could not be contained in a, a building, there was a place where he would identify with his people. And in the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle. And then we move into the New Testament. I want you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. What was it in the New Testament? I want you to see something. In John chapter 1, verse 17, just very briefly. I'm sorry, verse 14. A verse that you probably could have quoted if I just said the verse ahead of time. You might not have even turned there. John 1.14. And the word was made flesh or became flesh. And what happened? He dwelt. He tabernacled. He took up his abode. He lodged. He resided. He rested there. That's, all, that's what it means. Among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we just celebrated with communion, who is the only sacrifice acceptable to God. And when he came on earth and took on flesh, he tabernacled among us. He took up his abode among us. But it's also interesting, as the Lord Jesus Christ does that, since you're in John, just go to chapter 2. I want you to see something. In chapter 2, while he's tabernacling among the people by being here, you come down to verses 16 and 17 in the temple. Again, New Testament though. And he says this in John 2, 16 and 17. As he brings the scourge of the cords and so forth in verse 15, and he turns over the tables... He says to those that are selling doves in the temple, take these things away. Stop making, watch, my father's house a house 
of merchandise. And in the first cleansing of the tabernacle, he comes in, and what you find in the temple on earth, while he's on earth, he refers to it as my father's house. He identifies that with the place that the people were to meet and they were to go. Turn with me to Matthew 21. That was your responsive reading. Matthew 21. Just a couple of more points for this morning. Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, you have the second cleansing of the temple. And you read it this morning. You have the triumphant en entry. The Lord's coming in, and they say, basically, behold, here's the king coming in the name of the Lord. Here he is. And he enters the temple, verse 12, cast them out who were selling. And he says this in verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a what? House of prayer. The house that I identify with on earth, even though he was here in their presence, they had rejected him. He still recognizes that there was a place that people came to and identified as the house of God. Not that he could be contained there, but identification with. And he refers to it as a house of prayer. And you say, Pastor Dan, but that is New Testament, and it's the temple that the Lord came to. But then after the ascension, that is correct. Now stay with me on these last two points. What about today? After the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, after the ascension, the Holy Spirit has been sent to indwell, to tabernacle with, to be in, and we have God's presence in the believer. Go with me to two passages. Go with me, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I did a whole series of messages that took, I think it was about six to nine months on this passage alone. And you, some of you may remember it. Beginning in verse 19. Chapter 2, 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, believers, are fellow citizens with the saints, and watch this, and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, fitly being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, verse 22, in whom also are in, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And you say, there it is, Pastor Dan. You see, it's the individuals. Yes. In the individual believer's life, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up his abode. According to the same book, he is the deposit, he is the down payment of the inheritance that we have in Christ. And so we become the dwelling place, if you will, of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6.
You say you just shot down everything that you started preaching on. No, I didn't. Stay with me, not unless you turn me out for the next few minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, which you have quoted many times. In verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have of God, and that you're not your own? He says, verse 20, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. What are we saying? In the New Testament, we find that after the ascension of Christ, God has taken up residence in every believer. Yes, that's why he can be omnipresent. Through the Holy Spirit, he has taken up residence. So we need to understand that the body of Christ is an organism, right? Yes. It's not a church building per se, right? Right. He's taken up his abode in the body. And it's not a physical structure in that sense, but it's the body of the believers, right? Yes. However, if you stop there, you stop short of what the scriptures teach. Why? Because the scriptures don't stop there. He also says that the local church, the local church is his body is where he chooses to identify on earth. Really? Let's try the same book, 1 Corinthians. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Many, many, in my opinion, have quoted these verses and used them wrong. Why would you say that, Pastor Dan? Let's look at them. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Well, yeah, right, believers. No. What do you mean, no? That you is plural. He is writing to the Corinthian church. And with all that he's already exposed in that church, he says, don't you know that you as a group of believers meeting in Corinth? That's what he's saying. You are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God, in case you don't think that's so, and the Spirit of God dwells in you, plural. You. And he says in verse 17, listen, this is strong for the local church. If any man destroys the temple of God, he's not talking about the physical body. If anyone destroys that which I've established... God will destroy him. Why? For the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. The church of Jesus Christ as well, the Corinthian church, is referred to in the same sense as a temple of God. It's a place that God has chosen to identify. If I went no further, by the way, and you don't catch it, think about our New Testament. He's written to the church of Corinth. He's written to the church at Rome. He's written to the church of Colossae. He's written to the church of Philippi. He's rich, written to the church. Why does he do that? Because by God's design, every individual believer, first of all, is the tabernacling place of God within his body. 
And God has chosen that the ecclesia, the called out people, while represented universally, are to meet collectively in a locale, and God is identified with those people there. And if you don't, still don't see it, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. What are we saying? If we're going to understand the house of God, if we're going to understand the importance even of prayer and where it all fits in, we need to understand the whole concept behind this. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, watch verse 15. By the way, what happens in chapter 3? Well, if you're a little familiar with it, he talks about elders and deacons. He talks about how to structure the what? Local church. He's not talking about individual believers. He's not talking about set up an elder in your own house, meaning at Gage Street. Not talking about that at all. He's talking about the local church. And then he comes down to verse 15. He says, look, watch. In verse 15 he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you might know how one ought to conduct himself. Where? In the household of God. Which is what? The church of the living God. What is it? The pillar and support of the truth. He's talking about the local church. What's he saying? I'm writing to you, Timothy, in case I'm delayed, so that you might know how you might behave yourselves in the local body, which is his household. And it's the pillar. And by the way, that is what the church should be. This church should be standing for that. It is where the pillar and the ground of the truth should be found, where the word of God should be taught, it should be top priority, and obviously to you it should be already. Prayer is absolutely vital and is a priority. We're going to see that. So what are we saying this morning in laying the foundation? As we talk about the house of God, and we started with Isaiah, where he said, that his house was to be known as a house of prayer. We will come to that next week. We want, I want you to see that no house can contain God. The concept of the house of God, the concept of the temple of God, the concept of the building of God is indeed, in the New Testament time, the individual believer. But the individual believer also makes up that place that God has chosen to identify his name with, so that as people think about Fellowship Bible Church, they should be thinking about, or any other local church that's a true church, not just church in name, they should be thinking about that is a place that God has chosen to identify himself with. That is a place that I should be thinking about communing with God, where believers come together. And there's a communion because God identifies with him. That is why, let me give you a simple thing to think about. That is why, as bad as the Corinthian church was, God never gave up on it. As bad as it was, he told them how to correct everything. But the church at Corinth was still an apple in his eye and was still a place where he had chosen to identify, and he used the Apostle Paul primarily in a tremendous way to give instruction to that church as to how to rectify itself so it should be identified before the world the way it should have been. 
because God was concerned with it. So it is true. What is true? That the body of believers is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's also true that the local church is a place that God himself, not me, not you, not any man, has chosen to have a place, go all the way back to Exodus, wherever I choose to identify my name with. And God has chosen in the New Testament time, I'm saying to you, that the local church is a place that in a sense is a house of God and is supposed to be a house of God where people think that that's where I go to accomplish certain things such as worship and such as prayer. That's foundational. We'll pick it up there next week. But let me ask you this. I'll tell you this much. Most of you know my background. Coming out of Roman Catholicism, I'm not talking about the doctrine now. Catch this. I'm only sharing from my own heart. Coming out of Roman Catholicism, when I was a young boy, I will tell you this. There was a building, it was a structure, it was called a church. But that was a place that I thought of. If I want to go and pray, I'm going there. If I'm going to go for services to worship God, that's where I'm going. And I think, while they're way off in a lot of doctrines, I think there's a sense in which even if we are honest, those of us that are old enough, certainly, and think back, there was always even in not just our culture, but worldwide, a concept that we're a place where believers met. That was a place where I go to worship God. I can do it by myself. But that's really a place that I should be drawn to for prayer. I should be drawn to to worship God. And to set the tone for next week, I think too often today because of theology, because we think we know more than we really do. There's a lot of scouted temples of God that are failing to come to the place that God identifies with because they don't have the need for the place that God has chosen to identify his name with for worship and for prayer. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that by your grace, by your love, since the creation of man, you have chosen to tabernacle with men, to be among men, to be worshipped. Under your guidelines, you showed the structure. We're told in the New Testament that it's a picture of what is to come as we look at that old temple as we look at that tent, it was a design of what's in heaven, of a place where worship and prayer goes forth. And we see and we are so grateful and thankful that you in sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, tabernacled among men, had your presence among men, and now since his ascension have taken up your abode in the life of every individual believer. And we praise you for that. We thank you that we can worship you and should be worshiping you every day in our homes, at work, by ourselves. And we should be praying and, and recognizing your abode with us. But also, Father, we recognize that by your divine grace,
by your divine will, you've also chosen to identify with the local church, a place that's to be known for prayer, a place that's to be known for worship. And Father, as we begin to meditate on this, help us, Father, to see the importance, the importance of having a central location in which we can come together as the people of God and know how to behave, know how to act, for it represents the pillar and the ground of the truth. Lord, help us with that in our thinking. Continue to guide us in our time and study of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.